Hi, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Look, I've said many times that we are still navigating a global pandemic. Therefore, we're living and leading through the delta of change. And as such, we have to be able to accelerate our ability to change as well. Well, for that, I've got to talk to some amazing people and I've got an amazing guest coming up on this episode. How about retired Admiral Danelle Barrett? Trust me, you do not want to miss this episode. Come back to me just after this. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Well, it's a big and warm welcome to my special guest this week, and that's Danelle Barrett. Danelle, how are you? And thank you very much for joining us. I'm doing great. And thanks. It's an honor to be here with you. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this one. I say this, I think, on every episode because genuinely I get excited to actually have these kinds of rich conversations with some amazing people. And uh, I know we paused ever so slightly because you and I were chatting just before we went live and we were actually laughing and giggling, which I I love too. uh, As I asked you, where are you in the world? And you said... Sunny Tropical Buffalo, New York. Sunny Tropical Buffalo, New York, which again is why I love this podcast because I get to connect with people uh, from all over the world. Now, I mentioned in the intro that you are a retired admiral. So tell us a little bit about the background story because did you always want to be in the Navy? And I know you had an illustrious 30-year career, but how did that come about? Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I started off uh, going to, when I was going to college, I kind of wanted to do some sort of service. And I looked at the Peace Corps and a couple other things. And, and the service, uh, military service struck with me because you know, I really feel proud of our country, like in all the freedoms we have. I and mean, we just live in such sure. a great place, you know what I mean? And so I said, you know, well, let me come in the Navy and serve for a couple of years. And a couple turn into 30, you know, wow. how that works. You end up loving what you do and then you stay until they tell you to go home, right? And so, um, it was just a, a, a great journey. And, you know, it's interesting, too. We had two uh, museum ships, Navy ships, in our harbor down here in Buffalo. Because Buffalo is not a big Navy town. Right. And one of them was the Sullivans. And five of the Sullivan brothers during World War II, if you're not familiar with the story, died on the same uh, boat. Uh, and, you know, their family, that was obviously a huge tragedy for their family. And then wow. changed the way the military assigned people to units so that you didn't have family members on the same units as, you know, for that reason. And so that story really struck with me with that kind of sacrifice that a family made, you know, and those people made. And so anyway, um, I uh, uh, decided to become an officer and I did and I loved it. Every minute of it was great. So I had a wonderful conversation with Major General Tom Coppinger-Symes, who is part of the UK Strategic Command. And I asked him a question which I want to ask you so we, we understand the context. Tell us a little bit about the role and responsibility of an admiral in the U.S. Navy. Well, uh, an admiral, you know, even an admiral is getting coffee for somebody. So don't forget that. You got to maintain some humility here, right? He, he said as well, he said, there's always, there's always someone above him. There's always somebody. <laughs> You're taking orders from somebody, right? The president. Um, but no, what's nice about it is, um, you know, it's very humbling in it, when you get selected for admiral. And it's very, a lot of luck too, I'll be honest with you, because and there's a lot of people who are really qualified. And when they have the, what we call in the Navy, U.S. Navy selection boards, right. they may have, say, you know, 300 records that they start with and they're looking at to pick maybe two or three admirals, right? Or 
four admirals. And then they whittle it down, whittle it down. Maybe there's maybe 10 or 20 that are super competitive for it. And any day that wind could have blown someone else's direction and they would have been the admiral. So I just got really lucky, I think, too. You know, everybody works hard. Everybody's, you know, a good performer, but there's a lot of luck and a lot of people who plow away obstacles for you and good mentors, you know, like, you know, you're, you're sort of like, I always equate myself to like a kid riding a bike, you know, here you are, your parents are teaching you how to ride a bike. And you're like, look at me, I'm riding a bike. I'm all about me. Right. <laughs> and then meanwhile, your dad's holding the bike behind you, your mom's snow plowing, you know, obstacles out of the way, tree limbs and other kids and the mailman or whatever. So you don't wipe out. So I've had people doing that for me my whole career and I don't even know about it half the time. So I've just been really lucky. It's amazing, isn't it? Really, uh, we, we all need people. I think that's uh, that's clear from it, really, isn't it? We we can't we can't do yeah. what we do without actually other people helping and assisting us for sure. So, yeah, thirty years within the navy. What are some of the the most powerful lessons that drop out for you? I know we're going to talk about accelerating change, but as you move away from a thirty year career, and I speak to uh, other military officers, I speak to uh, members of the police service who have done. 30 years as a career, they normally end up leaving with some some quite solid learnings or, I, I don't know, kind of feelings as regards what they need to do next and why they need to do something next. Yeah, and I think when I when I look back at my military career too, like what's most significant for me is, you know, I did tour in Iraq, I've been on ships, you mm-hmm. know, supporting all sorts of things, did disaster relief in Haiti after the big earthquake wow. in 2010. So, there's a lot of really meaningful uh, evolutions that I would, operations I was involved with. I felt like, okay, it's really important to contribute to those. And, and a lot of things as I got more senior that were at the strategic level, like tra- digital transformation for the Navy, like yes. you talked about change and some of those things. But I think the most significant moments for me, and this may sound a little corny or cheesy, but it's true, are when I'd be walking through a store like on the base or wherever, and some sailor would come up to me and say, hey, you probably don't remember me, but you're the reason I stayed in the Navy or you gave me a chance, a second chance when nobody else did, or you helped me apply for an officer program. And I didn't even think I had that in me and now I'm a lieutenant or whatever, you know, those kind of moments, those little one-on-one moments with sailors or chiefs or civilians that I've worked with uh, mean far more to me than, you know, you get some metal or something like that, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's, it doesn't even compare to the feeling you get when someone says, Hey, you, you really made an impact on my life. And I think that's what the core of leadership is. The more senior you get, obviously it's more strategic, but you can still have that kind of impact to change people's lives. You, know? you have to have vision to do that. And, and they're kind of equated to like, people ask me, who are your heroes? Right. And they're expecting, Oh, you know, John Paul Jones or these big Navy guys. I'm like, my hero is Walt Disney. I mean, think about a guy, right. Who has, goes to swampland in Florida before there was anything such as Orlando, even on the map. And he looks at that swampland and he sees flying elephants with kids and their parents sitting in them eating popcorn, having a great time. And then he makes it a reality. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of person that changes lives. That's the kind of leadership with vision and then does it. And that affects so many people's lives. And, and that's just kind of what I kind of wanted to focus on. You know, I love that because we, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? To be such a visionary. And we talk about, you know, one of the ways that leaders can navigate their way through volatility is to provide vision and vision to the right. people who follow them. And how would you really have described that your leadership style when you were uh, senior within the Navy? Could you put a label to it? Could you, how, how would you describe bossy. it? Yeah, it's bossy, you know. <laughs> oh, I, 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 <laughs> As any I admiral is, right? Got the element. No, I think what I did though is I, you know, I don't take counsel from Mason. You know, there's yep. everybody in the world wants to stop you with the evil twins of institutional inertia and institutional resistance, right? They, those two twins come out at every opportunity. Right. right? 
And you can't, you can't take it. You can't abide by that. You've just got to stick true to your vision. You got to be the Pied Piper. You got to get people on your bandwagon. And you know, when there's a big change effort, for example, I used to tell my people they'd get frustrated because particularly in the military, anything in government, as you know, or probably in the legal profession, there's just bureaucracy who's just waiting. I mean, you got like the double Oh seven of no waiting to tell, you no. you know, I mean, they like specialize, they got their PhD in no, right. And they're just waiting for the opportunity to wield it and hammer you with it. Right. And you just, you just can't, you got to go around them. You got to go over them, whatever. And I always tell the people who are on the team with me, you're going to have like 20% of people at the top of the food chain who are all in. They're like, I see your vision. I'm with you. Right. And then you got like 60% in the middle who are watching you. They're wringing their hands a little bit. They're a little nervous. Uh, they're on the fence. And then you got the 20% at the bottom, the dwellers who are the, you know, hardcore resistors, yeah. right? Those PhD resistors. I told them, you give those guys at the bottom one or two chances, and then you cut them loose. You don't talk to them anymore. And a lot of people try to go after them because they feel like they have to convince everybody, get everybody on board. I'm like, no, you don't. Those guys will get drugged behind you with the momentum of the 16 and the 20. So, and I don't do public math, but that's more than 20, right? And so gotcha. you focus on the 60, get them on your side, money you can, and then the progress will happen faster and you'll get them drug along, be able to get dragged along behind you. And so you just really have to pick the battles that are most important, are most impactful, go after them like gangbusters and don't take no for an answer. You know what? I, I love this, Danelle, and it reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a CEO of a, of a multinational who talked about the bell curve and said, listen, I've got about 10%, he said, I've got about 10% who are with me straight away and who are buying into mm-hmm. the new vision and the new structure. He said, I've probably got about 80% who are somewhere in the middle of the bell curve and they'll maybe be the first follower. And then he said, I've got 10% who are going to be dragging behind and, and they're the resistance. And, and he described it in a similar way, but slightly different, where he said, and I want to give them every opportunity to get to come on board. But at some point, I'm going to stop the bus and they have to get off. Right. And that's the thing, too, is like you don't uh, you, you give them, like I said, a couple opportunities to get it, get on board, see where they fit in. And then you just you cut them off. Yeah. Cold, dark, cold, you know, and if they want to come aboard later, great. If not, you know, they're going to be out of the organization. They're going to be overcome by events. And you, but you just can't focus on them. And that's what people will tend to do is they want to get consensus from everybody. They want to get everybody to agree. And consensus to a point is needed and acceptable and encouraged, but it's not required yeah. for, for everything. Yeah. Well, you've gone on also to have a successful career uh, post the, the military, post the, the Navy. Uh, I know you're a consultant now. You're on four corporate boards. Uh, you are you're the author of Rock the Boat. Now, just help us with a little bit more context uh, around the book because give us the full title and a little bit of a, an overview of it for me. Oh, sure, sure. Yes, yeah. so it's called a Rock the Boat, Encourage Change, <clears throat> Embrace Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. And, you know, I really kind of wrote it because, you know, people would always ask, it's a book about leadership and mentorship yep. and how you build these change agents in today's world, right? Because it's a crazy world. Um, but I always found that people, when I do leadership talks or mentoring talks, they always ask the same questions. They're like, Hey, what do I do if my boss is a jerk? I'm like, well, let me tell you, cause we always have those jerky bosses. Right. Um, or, or they say, you know, how do you balance homework life or how do you plan a career, not just job to job and how do you do things deliberately? So I found that the same topics came up again and again. So I was like, ah, I'm just gonna write all that stuff down and then maybe somebody will read it or get something out of it. And so the book is really meant to be sort of like you and I are having a conversation now and I'm just chatting away. Right. Yeah. It's supposed to be like a over a cup of coffee. So you're not going to see like complicated leadership formulas in there because I'm I'm mathematical antimatter to begin with. You know, I don't do math. <laughs> you and me math, alike. Right? We oh share that. God. It's not going to happen. That's, right? why so I I that's why I did law, Danelle. That's why I did law. 
Yeah, there you go. You did law. That's good, right? But don't you hate when you pick up those books and some law, law book or some leadership book will have like this mathematical formula and you're just like, what the heck? Yeah. I'm dropping it. Like, yeah, that doesn't last very long for me. Uh, so anyway, in my book, I, I even enlisted my husband to uh, when I was talking about, you know, uh, users of technology who aren't all that bright and get their tongue stuck in the keyboard. He was gracious enough so that, you know, he was the model for the picture and we took a picture of him with his tongue stuck in the keyboard. So, you know, it's kind of a family affair. <laughs> That, look, you, you, that's a great story. You probably heard it here first, I think. Uh, I, he, he may not thank you for that, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Or the tinfoil hat. We, oh. we got him in a tinfoil hat, too. That's, that's a certain crowd, yeah. Look, one of the things that I know about you that I've also got to mention, because it's also fun, is that actually you're a movie extra. Tell us about that. I Okay, so, like, you know, I always love the theater and, and stuff like that. I said, yeah, when I retire, because you can't really be an extra in movies when you're in Admiral, right? That's not really looked upon very well, right? <laughs> So I said, okay, when I retire, I'm going to go be an extra in movies for fun, like one day a week. Because I said, you know, I'm retired, you know, I'm working, but you got to plan your fun first, right? And, you know, Dumpy Lady Crossing Street number two, that's a role I've been preparing for my whole life. I mean, I'm like right out of central casting, baby, you know? So, so I sign up for these things and, you know, they cut every once in a while, like usually about once a month, one will come up and I'll drive to wherever it is and do it for a day and, you know, it's fun, you know, you get to see movie stars like Jeff Daniels and uh, ooh, the last one I did had uh, Don Cheadle and uh, Adam Driver in it and they were standing right behind me signing, saying their lines and so I'm sure you'll see the back of my frizzy head and I'll be like, that's my head. <laughs> love it. I also love that you told the story that on the odd occasion they find out that you are a retired admiral. Yeah, so one of the uh, senior people on the set for one of the things I was doing did find that out and came up to me and was talking to me about it. And they're like, really? You're an admiral and you're doing this? I'm like, yeah, I do it for fun, man. It's it's, it's actually gets your It's kind of a, a hoot, right? And he says, well, he goes, how do you feel about that? I go, well, honestly, you know, show up and shut up. I did that in the Navy for 30 years. So I'm like overqualified for this job. <laughs> where do you want me to walk? Where do you, you want me to sit? Just, just show me. I'm just, yeah. So it's kind of funny. But you know what's interesting too is like the other people that were with me that day, one was the lead homicide investigator for like the city of Pittsburgh and the other guy flew private jets. So, I mean, you know, these are just mouth breathers, you know, wow. there's people with all sorts of things going on. Maybe this is the place to be. Uh, I, you need to be a movie <laughs> extra and you find the most wonderful and eclectic mix of people all you doing sure this. Do. Wow. You sure do. It's just kind of fun. Something different. Right? Some real pearls always drop out of these particular episodes and uh, <laughs> I, I'm learning as, as we go. Now, listen, you and I wanted to talk about accelerating change. We are in uh, an incredible change period the pandemic has accelerated it further it will be something after the pandemic in some ways the pandemic has also magnified our ability individually collectively and organizationally to change and i'm sure that you had to change and pivot whilst you were uh, in the navy probably in incredibly high stakes situation so just tell us a little bit uh, for, from kind of a holistic point of view your thoughts on the need requirement to be able to accelerate change and be part of that yeah and delete it it's not enough to be a yeah. victim of it you know and so you really to if you're going to be successful in a company or in, in life you have to see the opportunity as well as understand the risk but see the opportunity and go after the opportunity and in we live in the world uh, let me just give you kind of an example um you know so we live in a world where we have ex exponentially accelerating and converging technology Yep. So if I give an example about Please. that, like uh, you could say the convergence of Uber or Lyft, you know, ride services, the electric car and an autonomous vehicle. Each of those three technologies is hugely transformational in and among themselves. Right now you combine them together and there's a convergent point of those. 
And what that means on speech is this, that in the future, not too far, two, three, four, five years, I will walk out of my house in the morning and there will be some vehicle there, a hovercraft, an autonomous vehicle, something. And it's going to scan the RFID tag in my head or my arm. And it's going to take me to work wherever I go, because I go there every day. And based on my heuristics, heuristics, my behavior, AI, artificial intelligence is going to tell it, hey, she's going to go to the Pentagon today or whatever. It's going to take me there and charge my bank two bucks. And if I'm going to go to the airport that day instead, I'll say, I'm going to the airport today. It'll charge me an extra four bucks and take me to the airport. But what that means is not just that scenario, but it means kids today will never buy a car, learn to drive a car, need a car. They're going to do something else. It means there's going to not going to be pet boys and car dealerships and all these things, car rental companies, the way we know them today. Yeah, That is hugely transformational of a whole industry. So as a leader, you want to look for those points of not just novelty or interesting but convergent points that can be transformational to your business, your organization, whatever. So in some ways, these can be seen as incredibly disruptive and or incredibly transformational and then leading to different new, as yet unidentified, opportunities. Right. Solving a problem you don't even know you have sometimes. Well, quite. I mean, I I guess our kids as well, I've got a couple of teenagers, may actually be in jobs that don't even exist at the moment because mm-hmm. of uh, you, you know these these tipping points in society Absolutely. and the convergence of these technologies so what we're really talking about is potentially seismic change because you just mentioned there that our kids may never own a car and they may never even learn to drive it's just not necessary anymore right and you know when you when i say that sometimes people you can visibly see them stiffen up and have a little angst because they're like well i really like to drive a car you know i'm a really excellent driver i'm like no you're not <laughs> an autonomous vehicle but okay let's not get into that but but the point is too it's just a different world and i say you know okay yeah people who do horses and buggies love to have their horse and buggy out you can still have your horse and buggy out it's just not going to be your primary mode of transportation it's going to be a novelty you know, you could still have your 1970 Nova, uh, you know, which means doesn't go in Spanish, but whatever, you know, your old classic car and, you know, use that, but it's not going to be the way the world operates anymore. So it's, and that's hard for people to, to quickly grasp those kind of new technologies and make the changes in the process and the people side, not just the technology that you can get it, you know, an advantage for. So it kind of just depends on the whole crowdsource of the solution to make that happen, you know? Now, I've spoken to a couple of futurists as part and parcel of these podcast episodes, and they talk about trends coming our way and that they're, whether they're disruptive or they're opportunistic. And one of the things that we talked about there are what are some of really the mindset shift and some of the different behaviors that leaders are going to need to deploy in order to be able to ride the wave of accelerated change so that they're not overwhelmed by it, swamped by it, or paralyzed by it where they're just inactive because they can't make right. a damn decision to now so yeah. and again I'm, I'm maybe asking you to draw from your your military background as well what are some of the mindset and behavior shifts for leaders now so that they can navigate that accelerated change wave yeah so they, they need to understand the speed of it the speed is what is making makes it different today and you have to wrap you have to maybe uh make decisions with less facts so yeah. you know in the past maybe you can wait till you had 90 percent of the whole situation to make a decision now you may have 30% and you got to move or your company's going to be left behind. You're going to be Sears instead of Amazon. You know what I mean? Yep. And so you have to recognize that speed is a component here. Also security, cybersecurity, social norms, all the social media, you know, how things can be influenced correctly or incorrectly 
by a whole bunch of factors outside your control. So what are those things that you can control and do something about? And how do you get out in front of that? Because, you know, the first story is the one that sticks. You know that, right? Oh, yeah. And so, you know, so you can go back all day long and try to refute it or forensically say that wasn't me, you know, running naked on the beach, whatever, you know. But somebody, it, it, a lot of somebody, they're going to believe that first story and it'll take on a life of its own. And yeah. so we just have to be cognizant that the world of social media and the world of advertising, the world of marketing, all of that is different now. And, and that affects both, you know, a company and military operations. I mean, no, I you know, if I can prevent a war by influencing an adversary's behavior with the way I'm using information, good for me. That's just saved time, lives, and, and money, right? I just and so it. anyway, it's just a, it requires a different mindset and it requires you to take off the shackles of what you think you know and question every assumption more frequently than you do. And as you say, you can't put the genie back in the bottle sometimes, can you? I want to go back right. to something you said. You talked about you're having to make decisions and sometimes you haven't got 100% or 90% of the fact. You've got 30%. Now, I bet you had to make some really critical decisions, Danelle, sometimes with 30 or 40%. How are you comfortable with that? So what is almost the process you're going through to think to yourself, I've got what I need. Sometimes we talk about system one and system two thinking where, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to leverage your gut because of the, the years you've got, the wisdom you've got, and the experience you've got. But you're also looking for facts to support or indeed counter what it is you're thinking of doing. So how do you sit comfortably in that space of ambiguity even when you're making a critical decision? Because as you say, you may only have 30% of the facts. Yeah, you don't get comfortable. And if you get right. comfortable, that's a problem. You want to be uncomfortable. You want to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because in today's world, you are not going to have all those facts. You you do certain things to make sure you understand your risk, your opportunity and your risk. And now remember, risk could be doing something or not doing something. Yes, There's a risk to not doing something too. Sears versus Amazon, right? Okay. So there is a risk to, to that. And you need to be able to understand as best you can, what is that risk and communicate that to strategic partners, stakeholders, shareholders, whoever your other people are that you collaborate with and depend on you to do something, what is that risk you're assuming? And it is part of that risk shared with them because it might impact them, you know? And so you have to then, to get to that risk, you have to quickly have a really bright team around you of diverse people, not people who look and act just like you, but people who are different. So you can get all sorts of great opinions about what is the uh, assum- what are the assumptions you're making about the situation you're in. And are they valid or are they, you know, are they BS or, or are they, you know, potentially okay, but you don't know. So you just need to be able to be clear about, okay, what are you assuming about this situation or what are the facts that you actually have, how you know the facts. And, and then, but don't dwell on that. Don't admire the problem forever. You know, look at it, make a decision, and then have the confidence in yourself and your reputation that you can move out on that. And honestly, in that situation where you got like 30%, you're going to have more failure. And so as a leader, you have to be tolerant of more failure. Um, not repeated failure for the same stupid mistake, because that becomes a problem. But, you know, you have to let people fail, pick up and move on again. And, you know, even when I talk about Walt Disney, he failed with Oswald the Rabbit, who succeeded tremendously with Mickey Mouse. But had he not failed with the first, he wouldn't have had tremendous success. So there's ways to overcome that. Yeah, and it's using that failure as data, isn't it? And there are so many examples yeah. of what we call phoenix from the ashes from out of the abject failure then then came the success you mentioned something i have so many questions you mentioned something <laughs> about having that diversity of thought around you and in some ways that thought that will challenge the the thinking that you may have 
or the the course of action that you were going to go down. How do you actually deal with deference to hierarchy, especially in the military? Because if you are an admiral and you are the most senior officer out of many voices, what is the culture that you're wanting to create so that someone can say, actually, Admiral, I don't agree, and let me tell you why? Yeah, so I would tell you from Ensign to Admiral or from Seaman Apprentice Timmy to Admiral, I want people to speak truth to power. Right. And good leaders want people to speak truth to power. They want someone to say, Emperor, you have no clothes. Yeah. People who don't do that, to me, have a self-esteem problem because they feel like it's a personal challenge to them. Um, they need to get over that or get out of the job because that's not good leadership. You have to be ears open. A little, we call sign of the wolf. I used to have a friend, Captain Chandler, he'd go, Barrett, sign of the wolf, ears open, mouth closed. And he'd give me a little <laughs> you know, hand signal there, right? And so there's a lot to be said for listening before you jump in as the senior person, because the minute you jump in as a senior person and give your opinion, everybody else shuts up, Yeah. right? Or everybody else feels shut down sometimes. Even if you didn't intend that, you have to be aware of how your words and behaviors come across and what that, how that can impact. So if you're in a room and you're having a discussion about, okay, what should we do? What are our assumptions? This kind of Let everybody else talk first. Then you talk. Yeah, yeah, I, I and ask, you may find that you came up with a better solution because they have a much better idea than you. Have. Yeah, no, agreed. And I, I've asked many leaders. I said, "You are are you the first person to talk uh, in the meeting, or are you the last person?" And the answer is normally, "Well, they're the first person to talk." But then they set the context, and maybe they tell them what they're thinking, and no one then disagrees. And what you've got is an echo chamber, right? Or they've surrounded themselves with everybody who just—they're the like me's. You know, I'm a. 54 year old white woman with frizzy hair. So if I have a room full of people who are 54 year old women with white women with frizzy hair, we're going to have great discussions on frizzy hair, but nothing else. Right. Yeah. And so I want people around me who don't look like me, who don't act like me, who didn't come up in the same background as I did, who have completely different education, experience, perspective, whatever, because then you can get into like a really good dialogue. And actually I'm fine with, you know, a back and forth dialogue. Sometimes I've, I've had bosses in the past who, you know, we'd be almost in a shouting match, like some folks in the room and, and then we'd go to lunch right afterwards, you know, like it's water for ducks bag. We don't even think about it. But the senior person in the room would be like, oh my God, these guys don't get along. And, and, and at one time I pulled the senior guy aside. I'm like, hey, look, we absolutely get along. This is the way we're working out creative differences and having discussions and stuff. And, and I said, it's okay. It's okay to have different ways to do that and whatever works for the group to get to the best solution. It doesn't matter if everybody, you know, puts it in the, the nicest language, you know, so. Well, it reminds me of those trial lawyer days where I might be prosecuting and a friend might be defending and we can fight like cats and dogs in an adversarial system. Go have a beer. And then we go have a beer. And it's just, and, <laughs> then, right. and, and then the police used to say, how does that work? I say, oh, yeah, I know them really well. But, you know, when we're in court, we're doing our job. It is what it is. Exactly that. Um, yeah. So many things there to pick up on, including, as you say, the power of inclusivity and diversity of thought in order to make sure that we've got people around us who don't look like us, think like us, sound like us. Uh, and that we've got that, that that critical conversation going on. I think that's what I was hearing from you loud and clear. Right, absolutely. I, that's what I agree. And, and you've probably seen that in your profession in law too. I mean, it's it's no different. That really transcends industry, that kind of concept. No, I agree. One of the things we spoke about when we chatted before today was you talked about taking three positives from every situation. Tell me a little bit about that. Where's that come from? Well, it's a, it's a state of mind, you know, Colin Powell, I love, he says, positive, uh, being positive is a force multiplied. And that is so true, right? You know, when you're around the negative Nellies, they just bring you down. You know, you can self-talk yourself out of anything if you choose to. Yeah. You should self-talk yourself into why you should do it always and find those three positives. And 
you know, it could be the most cringeworthy situation, but you can still find something to be positive about. Can I tell you a story? Uh, I love a story. One? Okay, so a sea story. Usually this comes with a lot of beer if you're a sailor, but no beer today. Well, it's friend, almost but... beer o'clock for me, Danelle. Let, let's oh, be honest, okay, right? Remember, right. I'm, I'm Crack the UK. One open. There we go. Get that Guinness out. That's how this is going to work. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so here I am. I'm an admiral, and I'm in, in a briefing in the Pentagon, which, you know, the soul-crushing Pentagon, you do these all the time, right? And, and so um, there's a bunch of senior people in the room, three-star admirals and two-star admirals and a lot of senior civilians. And then there's probably 100 people on a video teleconference chimed in. And I'm talking about a highly technical digital transformation thing we're doing. And normally in those kind of meetings, you know, you don't want to talk technical stuff because it's like dolphins speak to them. Like, ee, 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 they don't know what the heck you're talking about, right? And so uh, that's how we talk to each other in IT world. And so you want to put it in language that they can understand, right? And so I went to say the systems and technical architecture. But what I actually said was the testicle architecture. And then you could have heard a pin drop in that room. I mean, it was like the most awkward silence you could possibly imagine. And you have like a split second to figure out, okay, what the heck am I going to say now? How do I recover from this? Right. So, you know, I, I always try to diffuse things with you where I was like, well, what the admiral meant to say, and now that I got your attention, here's what I really want to tell you, right? <laughs> yeah. And we went on. And so, you know, I could have gone home that night and beat myself up and been like, oh, God, that was so humiliating. And, you know, they're never, they're never going to forget that. And you know, everybody's always going to remember that. And my next whatever, they're going to say, oh, we can't have her there because she didn't know how to speak properly in public. And, but you know what I said? You know what? It, it's BS. Three years from now, no one's even going to remember I said it unless it's my friends who will dog me about it. But most people, it's like, if no one's going to remember three years, who cares, right? So my three positives, you know, I said, I'm going to take three positives out of even that kind of situation. The one positive is everyone's paying attention to the brief after that, right? They all got it. You know, the positive was for a communicator, the video teleconference stayed up, good on them. I wish it had dropped, but whatever, <laughs> you know? And the third thing is nobody remembered in three years, except this one guy who continues to do about it, but whatever, you know? So my point is you can find that you have to train your brain to be positive. And as a leader, you need to do that because that is makes you the pride piper of those around you, and it builds energy. Did you always were you always like that, or did you have to train yourself and learn that? Is that something from childhood you days? Mean, you mean the foot and mouth disease? Yeah, no, that's no, we've all done that. If I tell you that <laughs> the first word out of my mouth in the first case I ever did was bedingi, it's a word that doesn't exist <laughs> now. I don't know why I said it or where it came from, but that's what the it's word. Dictionary of British slang now, though. You yeah, probably coined it. Yeah, there's a picture of me like this, right, in the dictionary by the word. Um, and, and it's horribly true, by the way, that story. So uh, um, I, I love the story you told. But were you always like that? Where does that come from? Taking the positive always from a situation. Yeah, where's that coming from? Well, I think, too, it's the way I always raised. My mom is really that way. You know, it's funny. My mom's 78 years old, and, you know, she doesn't act like 78. Like, you need PVC pipe laid in your front yard, you give her a call. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So he, she'll be there. Like, yeah, she'll be there with the, her crew of her, her and the mouse in her pocket laying PVC pipe. But my point is, you can, you know, if you surround yourself with positive people and the, that kind of thinking, and it's not to say you're Pollyanna and you don't hear or listen to things that may be contrary to that or things that you need to consider as a leader. You certainly consider them, but you're not dwelling on the warts. You're not dwelling on the negative. You're not you know, constantly focused on people's faults or what's wrong with the plan or this or that, you know, there are some people who just tend naturally to that. And sometimes they do that as a defense mechanism. So they don't have to take action. Yeah. You know, people who are positive normally take action and get things done. And that's what I like to see. Happen. And is that a mindset that you, you found that you could even take into live theater as well? I mean, you were an operational officer for, for many years within the Navy. 
So, you know, sometimes you're in a situation where the stakes are incredibly high. Life is at risk. Um, yeah. and, and so how, again, do you still modify that or embrace that, taking three positives from, you know, we also spoke about, you know, take the knocks, forget about it and move on. Right. How do you still right, do yeah, that? You have though? to fail with grace. Yeah, you have to understand how to fail with grace and um, and show subordinates that you personally can fail with grace and you will allow them to do the same. Right? Yeah. And those positives are important, whether it's an operational life or death scenario or it's a budget decision or it's a, you know, a decision about a COVID policy or for work, work, you know, life balance things. And so or just at home with your marriage. I mean, you know, you, or you're with your significant other, your kids. I mean, you have all these kind of different relationships in your life and looking towards the positive of those and training your brain to look at that as opposed to looking to the negative, looking for the work, looking for the reason not to, to talk yourself out of something. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about the good idea fairy because that was another conversation <laughs> that you and I had. Um, we all know those guys. <laughs> well, talking about the good, the good idea fairy against getting things done. Tell me a little bit about your right. thoughts on that. Yeah, so I kind of have a reputation, I would say, I think in the Navy as someone who pushes really hard and tries to get something to happen. Not just, you know, because you have guys who are, uh, I call them the gifts, the good idea fairy, and they they throw out good ideas like they're throwing bananas to monkeys, like you're just going to pick it up and take it and let me implement that for you. Do all the hard work, sir. Right. You know, no, I mean, you got to knuckle down and do a lot of the hard work yourself. And sometimes it's just getting people to realize they have to change their way of thinking. I'll just give you an example. I was on a project that was very, uh, a digital transformation project was very challenging because a lot of, a lot of institutional resistance and um, my team, I gave them a, a process I needed them to change. And the process currently took 18 months to two years. And I told them I wanted it done in 24 hours. That right. this process now could be revised to do in 24 hours because of the new technology we were applying. And they said, uh, you could just see like, uh, okay. So they came back two weeks later. They're like, Hey, great news, ma'am. We got it from 18 months to 12 months. I go wrong denominator, go back 24 hours. Right. And I could see immediately the whole room, like kind of deflated because they had taken their old process and they were shaving off a day here, a day there, whatever. I said, okay, you guys, let's, let's think of it like this. Let's take that process, throw it out the window. Let's put up a blank sheet of paper. Okay. What is our objective? What are we trying to achieve here? Let's walk the dog back now and write a new process completely different on that blank sheet of paper. And and so we started down that road during the meeting. I said, okay, now you come back in two weeks and then I want to see that process in 24 hours. And you know what? They did it. Wow. But it just required leadership to kind of give them a different way to look at it. And so I think that's our responsibility in that regard. So help people understand the kind of work that you're doing now, because I know you're doing a lot of consultancy work, and I'm going to ask you in a second how people can get in touch and continue the conversation with you. But what are some things that you're helping people with right now as in your consultancy role? Yeah, so I do, um, like I said, I do the board work, which is helpful in that I provide a cybersecurity voice on a lot of the boards I'm on. So I'm right. sort of the cybersecurity voice, voice on several of the boards I'm on. And I think that's helpful because in today's world, cybersecurity and protection of data are a huge yeah. business concern, a personal concern for everybody. I mean, the whole thing no, for our national infrastructure, you know, everything. And so um, there's that. And then, uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking too, which I really enjoy just because it's like we're having a conversation now. It's really interactive and it's, it's very enjoyable, but you can get across some concepts that maybe help people think about things in a different way, gotcha. you know, which is always good. And then just in consulting in general, a lot of it's cybersecurity related, because again, that's where uh, people seem to have a big need, particularly at a strategic level, like at the board and C-suite level to understand, okay, how do I understand my risk in cybersecurity? And what does that mean for my business? You know, so I do a lot of that. Gotcha. All right. So how can people continue the conversation with you? What's the best way for them to connect with you, Danelle? 
Well, it's just uh, Danelle Barrett one at gmail.com. Right. That's my email address. Anybody can connect with me there. And then I have a, a website, DanelleBarrett.com. And I have a, you know, I also do a mentoring blog where I put out mentor nuggets every single day. Okay. It's called mentoring with the Admiral. It's a Facebook group and it's on Twitter and uh, Instagram too, but I'm more active on the Facebook group and I put out a nugget every day and on LinkedIn, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. And okay. The nuggets there. Yeah. Mentoring so with the Admiral. Was, that sounds pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. It's just, I put out like common sense, little things every day, little mentoring things you could take away you know so great all right well that's a that's a, a great array of uh, ways that we can contact you or anyone can contact you so uh, here's my final question for you what is the most powerful piece of leadership advice that is front of mind for you that you've ever given or received well i'll say received because i've received a lot of great stuff over the years but i had a mentor who stuck with me and he's still with me i still call him up all the time he's probably like when am i getting rid of this woman um but anyway he told me one time, I was, I was complaining about some job I was going to get. It was actually in the Pentagon. I think I was a lieutenant commander. They're going to send me to the Pentagon. I didn't want to go. He's like, hey, make lemonade out of lemons. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, again, it's like looking for where can you contribute? Where can you make a difference in no matter what situation you're in? So he was right. And he, as he always is, he was spot on. And be the change. I think that's a wonderful uh, little nugget there to end things off. Listen, Danelle, thank you so much for being a, a great star. It's been wonderful connecting with you a couple of times. And it's been amazing to have you as a guest on the Leadership Enigma. I hope you've had fun. I did. It was a lot of fun. It's always fun talking to him. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. And it's always fun with a purpose. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Danelle. Okay, take care. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel. And remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.